Isn't God good? Isn't God good? Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. And we bless your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I wonder if you are a fan of the BBC TV series Fake or Fortune, or perhaps of the much-loved Antiques Roadshow. I confess I've seen few of the former, but plenty of the latter. In Fake or Fortune, I understand, Fiona Bruce teams up with Philip Mould, that art historian and painting hunter of note, to investigate the truth behind mysterious works of art. Are they fake, or are they actually a lost Rembrandt, a Degas, a Chagall, a Constable, or a Monet? The series goes to great scientific lengths to try and reveal an authentic painting or unmask it as a fake, using Raman laser spectroscopy, thread count, and infrared radiation, amongst other techniques. I'm sure you understand those as much as I do. In the Antiques Roadshow, the thrill of the program, apart from admiring often lovely artefacts that members of the public put before the cameras, is the unearthing of something exceptional, valuable, and original. Most of the time, we hope that what is produced will be authentic. And in fact, fake or fortune sometimes produces a nugget of gold. In 2015, they authenticated an original painting by Paul Delaroche called The Execution of Lady Jane Grey. It's actually a very good painting too, which had been bought in 1989 for £500, but when authenticated was revalued at 75000 Well, the dictionary, dictionary defines the noun authenticity as the quality of being real, as we heard earlier. Real, true, or genuine. And it can also mean the quality of being what someone claims to be. So these TV shows set out to uncover whether the painting or artefact in consideration is actually what the owner hopes it is, an original or authentic masterpiece. Now, if science and artistic knowledge can unearth what is authentic in a painting, how can we know, how can the world see whether we Christians are authentic, whether we are the real deal, whether we are what we claim to be, a masterpiece of our Creator. Science is no help in this, but the Bible is. Now, Hebrews 4, chapter, uh, verse 12, tells us that the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, to joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Word cuts through the noise and the superficial shell of our lives to what is essential. And when we hold the Bible as a mirror up to our lives, we quickly see whether we are authentic or not. So we're going to have our reading now, where Peter, in his first epistle, highlights three key areas which dis distinguish whether our faith and our Christian walk is authentic or not. So let's listen to the passage. So the reading is taken from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 to 16. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Mm. Therefore, prepare your minds for action be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. Thank you very much, Jane. This is one of my favorite Bible passages. And I remember sitting in our pastor's house soon after I became a Christian in 1979 reading it and scarcely believing the treasure that it unveiled. Every time I return to these verses, I want to jump for joy. I want to suggest that Peter sets out in this reading three distinct but intimately connected qualities of Christian authenticity. We're going to look at our Christian journey in a bit of detail. Aided by some complex theological terminology, the start, the goal, and the bit in the middle. So what do I mean by that? Firstly, the start. 
Peter begins with praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, because he has given us new birth in Christ, which is a living, real hope. The requirement to be born again, or born from above, is not a term invented by American TV evangelists, despite what some may claim. When Nicodemus came to Jesus to ask him what was going on, recounted for us in the third chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus immediately directed him to the essential core of his message. You must be born again from above if you are to see the kingdom of God. This was very confusing to Nicodemus because he thought that he already was. In Jewish tradition, there were six ways in which a man could be born again. Six ways. And Nicodemus had achieved four of them And the other two would have been impossible for him as a Jew to fulfill because a Gentile was said to be born again when he converted to Judaism or when he was crowned a king. Nicodemus had been born again, according to tradition, at his bar mitzvah when he was 13. He'd been married and when a Jew became married, he was said to be born again. He had been ordained as a rabbi and thus also deemed to have been born again. And he was the head of a rabbinical school. Jesus called him the teacher of Israel, a prominent authority amongst rabbis. So he would have been deemed to be born again in this respect also. Nicodemus met all the criteria for being born again in Jewish tradition. But what was this that Jesus was talking about? His confusion led him to ask Jesus whether he had to re-enter his mother's womb and do it all over again. Of course, Jesus was not talking about any aspects of Jewish tradition. Nicodemus needed to be born from above. Jesus was not talking about physical rebirth, but spiritual. Being spiritually reborn is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Like Nicodemus, we must recognize that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and without him we have no hope. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to to the Father except through me. Sinners from birth, because man has rebelled against God, we are eternally lost, all of us, unless God rescues us. And he has, through Jesus' life, death on the cross, and his resurrection, When the Holy Spirit reveals to us that we cannot humanly attain to God's holiness and righteousness or satisfy his justice, when we come to ask Jesus to forgive us our sins and give us new life, the Holy Spirit renews us from within. That's being born again or born from above. We can't explain it scientifically or naturally, because it is the work of the Holy Spirit, which we receive by faith. Verse 9 of the 10th chapter of Romans says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, born again from above. Yet we're somehow embarrassed, aren't we, about this phrase being born again. We're reluctant sometimes to tell the world that they're sinners as once we were, and that they face the wrath of God without Jesus. 
It's deeply offensive to people today, just as it was in Jesus' day. And Jesus told us that people would find the cross offensive. It's offensive to say that we cannot save ourselves. Our feelings won't save us. My truth won't make any eternal difference. Only Jesus. The gospel is an offense because we think we can do it by ourselves. Or there is no need for salvation. Or it will be okay in the end. Or that God won't really judge us. Or I don't really care anyway. Or it's all fairy stories. And like Nicodemus, we can fall into the trap of thinking that by following our traditions, trying to be good, attending church for years, doing all the right things, being baptized and confirmed even, entering into Christian marriage, all these things, through these things we're saved. But these good things and these sacraments are outward signs of an inward grace, outward evidence of an internal transformation. If we're not born again, we're no better off eternally for doing all these things. Indeed, we're fooling ourselves. The wrath of God is not a fairy story, and it's terrifying to contemplate meeting him with the out, without the assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. So Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of salvation to the Jew first and for the Greek also, or for the Gentile also. And this is why Peter, in our reading, bursts into praise given us new birth through Jesus. This is the start of it all, the fundamental access point to eternal life, that we believe in Jesus and we cling to him as a drowning man clings to a life belt. Born again, born from above, is the first hallmark of Christian authenticity. And are we born again? If not, we need to do something about it urgently. The second hallmark is the goal, is to understand and look forward to the eternal inheritance that God has reserved for us in heaven when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you know that there is an inheritance for you and for me at the end of death? It's there for every believer and it can't perish, spoil or fade. Followers of Jesus have a most joyful eternity to which to look forward in our new home at the end of this life. And that is good news. Why is this a hallmark of Christian authenticity? Just before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them, one that had many rooms, a place in his father's house, and that he would return and take them to be with him there. This place is our destiny, and this life, the opportunity and the means of arriving there. One of the points Jesus was making was that if he is the truth, the way and the life, and that he is at the Father's side, our home is not here, not on this earth, but where he will be in the new heaven and the new earth that he promises when he comes again. And many of the writers of the books of the Bible coalesce around the truth that we're just passing through this place. Our hope is not here. 
Our place is not here in the spiritual and eternal sense. We're on a journey to somewhere else, somewhere much better. Yes, there is much to do here, much to enjoy, much to appreciate, as well as much that is awful. But the Bible calls us to keep our eyes focused on what lies ahead in eternity. The writer of the Hebrews sums it up well in his 11th chapter, that great roll call of the faithful, partway, partway through which, after he has explained the faith of Abel and Noah and Enoch and Abraham, he remarks in verse 13 and following that these heroes of faith had seen, as it were, from afar, the great eternal promises of God and had acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They were seeking a homeland, desiring a better country, the one in which they lived. And God, the writer of the Hebrews says, is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And in the sixth chapter of Matthew, Jesus urges his listeners not to lay up treasure on earth where it can become spoilt or stolen, but instead to lay up treasure in heaven where it cannot, as Peter affirms in our reading. We must take Jesus seriously on this point. The reason for our existence is not to build up a legacy for ourselves here on earth where we don't belong, but to store up treasure for eternity. And when Jesus says, store up treasure, he means just that, as the parable of the talents makes clear. Actively store up treasure where we will spend eternity, not here on earth where we exist for only a few years. When I was a student at the University of Newcastle-Pontine, I used to listen to a venerable man of God, widely acknowledged as a prophet, now long since dead, called Alec Buchanan. And he would often urge his listeners thus, get greedy for rewards. We should, he said, be focused on building up heavenly rewards. That's what I'm doing, he said. And do you know why? I want to gather as many rewards as I possibly can in this life. And when I get to heaven and meet Jesus face to face, I'm going to kneel before him and place all those rewards at his feet. What a wonderful way to think about eternity and our entrance into it. Don't you and I want to spend whatever time we have left on this earth, one year, ten years, thirty years, preparing properly for eternity and for meeting the Lord? This is the clincher for us. We are going to meet the Lord, actually see him face to face and kneel before him in worship. Don't we want to be ready for eternity? As prepared as we can be on this earth to meet our Lord and Master? This is the second hallmark of Christian authenticity in our reading. Understanding the inheritance we have in Christ. So, how do we do this? What's the middle bit? Peter makes it very clear in verses 13 to 16 of our reading. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. 
As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. An Old Testament instruction reasserted in the New. But, we exclaim, I can't be holy because I'm human and prone to sin. Yet God says, be holy. What's going on here? Because God would not give us an impossible instruction, having just relieved us through Jesus of the impossibility of saving ourselves. Or would he? We can't possibly make ourselves holy. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. If you like, to make us more like Jesus. Paul is sure of this thing in his letter to the Philippians in the sixth verse of the first chapter. He says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus will do it by his Spirit. So if, he'll, if he will make us holy, what is our part in the sanctification process? I think it's firstly to have the attitude of mind that we will be holy. A determination not to sin. In effect, to live lives as living sacrifices. In the Psalms, David is continually saying that he will not sin and that he will keep his way pure. The way he determines to do this is to obey God's commands. The ninth verse of Psalm 111 asks the question, How can a young man keep his way pure? To which he answers, By guarding it according to your word. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. My goodness me, that's an amazing statement. And Paul says, If you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Knowing and following God's word is fundamental to becoming holy. This is the first step in our part of the sanctification process. And there's no shortcut here. Reading, study, obedience, getting it right and rejoicing, getting it wrong and repenting, seeking forgiveness and trying again with that determination to follow God's word is the process. And it's a lifetime's endeavor. And there's something else as well. After Peter was rehabilitated by the risen Lord Jesus and they were walking away from the breakfast by the shore in the 21st chapter of John, Peter asked Jesus, so what about this man? Pointing at John. Jesus said, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. That was Jesus' command to Peter, and it's his command to us. If we want to be holy, we must, we need to follow Jesus every day in all our doings. We need to deliberately set aside sin and those things that lead us into sin. I had to do this recently with an attitude that I knew was wrong, both with, but with which I had struggled for years. One morning, Jesus said, will you give it up for me? 
And that broke my heart. Because the only answer to that, to that is, of course I will. Submission. Laying down our lives and following Jesus with grit and determination. The same determination that Jesus had when he set his face towards his death in Jerusalem is the third hallmark of Christian authenticity in our reading. So authentic because we are born again, born from above by the Holy Spirit. Authentic because we're on a journey to our real home with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. And authentic because we are following Jesus and determined to be holy. So let's be quiet for a moment. Let's have some time of silence as we contemplate what the Holy Spirit might have been saying to us uh, in the course of this service. Think particularly, if you are not born again, if you have never asked Jesus into your life, is not this time a good time to do so and become part of his family? If you've never really thought about your inheritance in heaven, and in preparing to meet the Lord, what will you do? Or what does following Jesus look right now to you? What do you need to do to ensure you are following him? What do you need to lay down, stop doing, repent of, set aside? Let's be quiet and prayerfully think about what God is saying to each of us.